0: Rosa.
1: A podcast about security, human rights, conflict, and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. In this episode, I talk to Ross Frenet and Vidya Ramalingam about countering violent extremism or CVE. This is a term that refers to non coercive efforts to help prevent people from becoming involved in terrorism. Ross and Vidya have both worked and researched in this area, for organizations such as Google Ideas and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. They recently created their own organization, Moonshot CVE, in part to help test out different ideas and gain a better sense of what works and what doesn't work in this area. In this episode, we cover various different types of violent extremism, issues of how people become involved, the benefits of working with former violent extremists, but also the dangers that compose. We discuss the role of women in the Islamic State, the increased awareness in Europe of violent extremism from the far right, and various problems with research and work in this area. I interviewed them a few months ago when they were visiting Australia from the UK. Enjoy. Hi, Vidya and Ross. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. us. So to start with, you both research and work in the area of countering violent extremism, or CVE. Can you briefly explain what that means?
2: Uh, I mean, CVE and how we see it is uh, something that sits between the law enforcement space where people need to be kicking in doors and, and, and doing, taking physical action, um, and broader societal cohesion work. Um, CVE is focused on identifying people that are at risk or are currently on their way into extremist movements and using a whole range of methodologies to stop them from getting in. There's often a temptation to stretch it beyond that, but in our idea, if uh, the, the wider you kind of bring your lens, the, the less focused the, the work itself can be and the harder it is to measure.
1: And these extremists can be jihadists, neo-Nazis, all sorts of things.
2: Jihadists, neo-Nazi, uh, Irish Republican. I mean, I'm Irish myself, so uh, yeah, it can be any 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 number of types of organisations.
1: Um, So until recently, you both worked at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and you worked on a few projects involving former violent extremists. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Sure. So um, while I was at ISD, I ran a global network of former extremists called Against Violent Extremism. Um, We ran that in partnership with the Gen Next Foundation and Google Ideas. Uh, And that uh, was a network of hundreds of former extremists and also survivors of violent extremism. Uh, the logic behind that network was that those people that have been directly affected by extremism whether it's by being a perpetrator or being at the receiving end of it are the most credible messengers to push back against extremist narratives Uh, and I don't know if you did some stuff with Formas as well
0: yeah, and particularly in the in the space of responding to right wing extremism, formers can be an incredibly valuable resource in terms of getting into the heads of those that are vulnerable to these movements. Um, the the kind of idea of having someone who's been there and has experienced that and has turned their lives around can be incredibly powerful to to change others.
1: Okay, and so there there were lots of these formers willing to help. Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd be
2: surprised. There's uh, very often uh, people that leave these movements um, are keen to, uh, well, some of them are keen to just get back get on with their lives, but others are keen to make sure others don't make the same mistakes. Um, But there are still lots of barriers um, between uh, governments and and former extremists in terms of how they can make that process work. Uh, I had an example I spoke to a prison officer from... An unnamed European country who had a great conversation with about the use of former extremists in prisons. We were talking about the problems of, of prison radicalization, and uh, by the end of it, I thought, yes, I've gotten through to this guy. Uh, and he said, but of course, we could never do that because if someone has the slightest criminal record, we can't work with them. At that point, yeah. I kind of put my head in my hand. So there's still huge barriers to utilizing former extremists, although it often gets, uh, gets paid lip service. I mean, when we started this started doing this work five years ago even, it was it was a little bit more controversial and then at the White House CVE Summit, uh, Barack Obama stood up and spoke specifically about the role formers have to play. So things have progressed but there's still an awful lot of barriers to utilising that resource.
1: Okay. And are there any risks involved with farmers not being who they say they are, or exaggerating how much they can help, or being particularly controversial within the communities because of their role of having actors, say, you know, because they're now seen to cooperate with the state and they're seeing as the sellouts or... What are some of the risks involved?
0: Yeah, there there are absolutely risks involved. The the journey out of an extremist movement is by no means linear. It doesn't kind of go to A to Z in in one straight fashion. It oftentimes moves in, in circles and loops back, and and can take several years. Um, so even understanding at what point in in, in in a former's journey out of out of movement and in his process, his or her process of rebuilding their lives, at what point they are ready to engage in what is effectively social work in a lot of ways, um, can can vary, and you need to ensure that there. Are are really structured vetting processes in place as you're, working, as you're working with individuals that have experienced, in some cases, trauma and, um, and, and have themselves been perpetrators of, of violence. So that's certainly a concern and it certainly poses a number of risks, but to our mind, that's not a reason to, um, the, the challenges of working in that space are not a reason not to pursue it.
1: These formers came from a lot of different types of groups, jihadist, far-right, Irish Republican, various other things. Um, were there a lot of similarities across the different groups of the stories of how people became involved? Yeah,
2: I mean, the there's a temptation I think, especially when, when people uh, in academia, academia uh, and elsewhere uh, focus on ideologies to, to say, well, they're, they're very different because of X, Y and Z reason. And what oftentimes our work would do is say, okay, if there's 10 things that get people into violent extremism, maybe seven of them are common throughout all groups. Um, And rather than focusing on the three, which we can all agree, uh, you know, do draw clear lines between these movements, let's focus on the seven. Um, And in terms of overriding reasons people get involved, uh, and this is everything from cults through to violent gangs in LA, through to jihadists in in, in Indonesia, um, a search for identity and belonging. If if I had to synthesize the hundreds of stories that, that we've come across in, in I mean, well, that I've come across in my career present video you as well, um, then that would be the primary driving factor that unifies almost everyone that we've come across. So there were major differences in terms of what got people involved, in that you have, you know, your uh, well-off ideologues who, you know, didn't come from a socially disadvantaged background. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are flirting with kind of mental illness and didn't have a strong understanding at all of the ideology and just looking for anything to hang their hat on. Um, but actually, those differences very often existed within each movement. I can think of, um, and uh, I wouldn't want to name them on the podcast, but uh, I can think of named individuals who we work with now who were extremely violent members of neo-Nazi organizations that came from very well-to-do backgrounds. Uh, They were bright, well-educated, and the ideology is kind of one of the things that that drew them in. Um, And likewise on the jihadist side, we we worked with individuals that uh, that, that came well-prepared, good backgrounds, knew their ideology and got involved, and then we also had the kind of people just looking for anything to hang their hat on. So, if I was drawing kind of differences in terms of how people get involved, those differences are all also, also kind of cut across ideologies. I'm trying to think of, I mean, I suppose ethno-nationalist groups that are highly, highly localised. Like Tamil Tigers.
1: Uh, yeah, Tamil
2: Tigers, Irish Republican groups, um, and and others. Um, and also some of the gang elements. Uh, we tend to draw a, a distinction between, uh, not a distinction, sorry, draw similarities between ethno-nationalists and gangs. Certain gang ideologies, in commas. Uh, are almost like hyper hyper localized forms of of, of kind of proto nationalism, um, but that's another 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 question. But I think that the support networks that exist around these these individuals that come from communities that are engaged in a conflict uh, mean that those processes in are very different. So in ethno nationalist contexts and perhaps in um, in gang contexts. But I mean, I know Vidya, you you have on on What's... the German far right is really interesting on this as well, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to I, I was
0: just going to make a, a slightly separate point um, that what's fascinating from my perspective is when you look across ideologies and when you look at what draws people into these movements and what makes people leave, within each of those ideologies, we often say um, there's as many roots into extremism as there are extremists in the world. And so within each of those ideologies, there's a vast diversity of, of stories as to what brought someone into, you know, a right-wing extremist movement and brought them out. But when you look across ideologies, that's when you actually start to see the commonalities all the way across. You start to see the themes coming out, the kind of individuals that experienced abuse in some form and that led them to seek a movement to to, to offer them, them some form of protection. Then you also have individuals who um, grew up in, in either broken families or, 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 you know, were bullied as a kid, so they, they are seeking a, a new family and a kind of father figure or brotherhood. And you see that across ideologies, and, and it's the, the kind of thing that when you look at one ideology on its own, oftentimes those patterns don't necessarily come out, and that's where um, comparing extremisms and looking at them as as phenomenon that, that sit side by side is, is incredibly important.
1: And so a lot of your work back at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue involved looking at far-right violent extremism, and you're involved with the thing called the Far-Right Extremism in Europe Initiative. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. The, the Far-Right Extremism in Europe Initiative, the, the free initiative, was set up really as a response to, uh, to the, the realisation in the aftermath of Anders Bering Breivik's attack in Norway in 2011, the realisation that that European governments, um, regardless of where they sat in the EU, just simply hadn't taken this issue seriously enough. It hadn't been given the same amount of intention attention. it hadn't been uh, given the same amount of investment as the issue of Islamist extremism. and and that's for a number of reasons and and we can go into into that um, at a later time. but but the free initiative was set up as the first, pan-European cross-governmental initiative, so it was set up um, by the Swedish Ministry of Justice in partnership with 10 European governments um, and to, to simply look at, at the problem of far-right extremism as a threat to not only community safety but also to national security across Europe um, and to highlight the importance of working across borders on this issue and building capacity across borders. So, so, what we did in building up the Free Initiative was, as a starting point, identifying practitioners, policymakers, even right down to an individual police officer. Um, who, who were all responding to right-wing extremism in their daily lives, but who didn't in many cases see themselves as, as responding to far-right extremism. In lots of cases, they saw themselves as people that were doing anti-racism work, people that were working with vulnerable individuals in their community. Um, they saw themselves as social workers. And what we wanted to do was really pull together people that, that didn't necessarily see themselves as CVE activists, and, and help them to recognize that actually they have a huge amount to learn from one another across borders. So that was the, the, the prime intention behind the free initiative.
1: Okay, and how did you go about that? you arranged a bunch of meetings with them, distributed research, had workshops, had, how did it work?
0: So we did field, um, field visits to each country involved in the projects. So that was ten countries, it was all of the Nordic countries, um, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, uh, including uh, as well as the Netherlands, the UK, Germany, Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia, so it very much had a span across Northern and, and Eastern and Western Europe, um, which had also been somewhat unheard of at the time because you would tend to get governments within Scandinavia that would compare notes on this, or Eastern European countries that all shared borders comparing notes, but not so much a conversation across across those divides. Um, we did field visits to each country we identified individuals through a a simple snowball method Um, a lot of it was kind of recommendations and referrals oh I've you know I've heard of a a school teacher in that county who's been responding in this way and then we'd go and try and meet them Um, so it was very much um, building relationships at at a grassroots level and then bringing all of those individuals together to, to share their learnings and we also very much wanted to ensure that there was a learning component that didn't just take the form of conferences because that can be hugely Limiting in terms of how many people you can reach, so we set up um, an online interactive platform to really kind of um, you know yeah to to set in stone some of the learnings that had taken place at the at the grassroots level and to make sure that that was transferable. So we we set that up in different languages so that it was accessible to to a much wider audience. Okay,
1: and is this still functioning?
0: It's still functioning. You can go to www.thefreeinitiative.com and that has all of the resources, handbooks, interactive uh, learning tools that that you can click through.
1: Do you think there's a lot of countries outside of Europe such as Australia, Canada and the United States can learn from that too?
0: Absolutely. The, The starting point for the free initiative was very much Europe, but by no means is that the end point. Um, we've spoken to lots of lots of practitioners in the US who have been taking advantage of some of the the networks and the tools that were built by the free initiative um, a great example of that is um, is actually a kind of exit programs and the methodology behind exit um, exit is a is a, um, a brand name for a form of disengagement programs that have been that have been set up across Europe to work primarily as a starting point with right, right-wing extremists but now actually that work across across the spectrum and we've actually seen in the last couple of years because of increased networking amongst practitioners and um, and even sometimes just one individual activist who who sees that actually in Europe this, this methodology seems to be working and wants to test it in their local context. We've now seen um, efforts to set these up in Canada, in, in the United States. So that's the great power of these sorts of initiatives is, is really um, serving as a place for people to get inspiration to then take methods and apply them locally.
1: Okay, and just to explain a bit more of what exit is for the listener. This is a program that began, if I'm correct, in Germany in the 1990s with former neo-Nazis. It
0: began in both Germany and Sweden, um, and these were programs that were set up to to work with neo-Nazis. They're programs that uh, oftentimes rely on a voluntary approach, so individuals must voluntarily approach exit organizations with the intent to leave. So they don't necessarily go out and try and change people's behavior themselves. They they rely on individuals wanting to change. And then they offer a support, a support base and also very, very practical um, services to ensure that person can turn their lives around.
1: Yeah. And I think um, often when people see those programs, they sort of say, well, what's the point if you have to wait till the person wants to leave? The point is to go out there and change their minds. Mm. But I think people often don't realize that within a lot of extremist movements, there's always Quite a large number of people who do want to leave and are looking for a way out if feel trapped.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: if you open or part the way out for them, a few people are going to take it, and that can make a difference.
0: Absolutely. One of one of our, our, our friends who is a former always says that people don't don't ever make careers as an extremist. You don't go into this to, to make this a career. And so you'll find in in almost any extremist movement a, a large number of individuals who. Are oftentimes already thinking that they want to leave but the number of barriers that you face in order to actually leave an extremist organization whether it's right-wing or Islamist or, or any are, are I mean there's there's numerous there's barriers in terms of your um, you know your social networks may all come from that movement your family may come from that movement so how do you actually how, how can you even conceive of rebuilding a life outside of everything you know um, you may you may be financially tied to the movement they may actually be offering they may be giving you a job and giving you income. Um, so there's a, a lot of practical barriers there that that mean that people that are doubting their ideology and, and want to leave may end up trapped in movements for years. Yeah
1: and they can even just be something as simple as physical safety mm-hmm. but they'll exactly. be threatened as a sellout if they leave. Exactly. And with the ten different countries you're looking at within the free initiative, were there major differences between them? Some governments really concerned about far-right bound mm-hmm. extremism, others sort of more reluctant to see it as an issue. Mm-hmm. What were some of the differences?
0: There were definitely differences across Europe. Um, There's a huge willingness, um, there was a huge willingness in the aftermath of Breivik's attack in Scandinavia to deal with this problem. And actually, we've now seen um, the results of that willingness, particularly in Norway. Um, Now, five years after Breivik's attack, they've set up a a national uh, expert center on right wing violence, Um, very heavily government funded, a lot of investment to ensure that. There certainly are differences in terms of the willingness and capability of governments to deal with right-wing extremism across Europe. You have some governments that, because they were unfortunately the targets of quite high-profile right-wing extremist attacks, have have of course had a, a reactive response to that and have invested um, heavily in, in this issue post post incidents. Incident. So, Norway is an example of that. Um, but you do have a number of other countries, and, and particularly when it comes to the Eastern European context, where it's a much more challenging environment for, for civil society organizations in particular who are trying to to make progress on this issue. So it just highlights the importance of, of governments being front-footed and, and not waiting for, for incidents to happen, and also the importance of political buy-in at the highest levels to deal with right-wing extremism as a, as a serious threat.
1: Okay. Um, And one concern often raised about CVE programs is the question of how much research and rigour is behind them. So there are issues of how do we know what actually works to help people get out of these movements or help prevent them from becoming involved? Um, How do we know what might not work? How do we know if we're being um, productive or counterproductive? Um, Tell us about some of the issues involved in making sure CVE programs are based on well-founded approaches.
2: Yeah, I I think that uh, there's huge structural problems in a way that the CVE sector is set up uh, that actually discourage uh, rigorous research analysis and uh, metrics tracking um, which are linked to a whole range of things. I mean, first of all, uh, organizations that receive funding to uh, carry out CVE programs are obviously incentivized to push the idea that they're successful regardless of whether or not they are. Um, those institutions that are funding also have an incentive to say that what they've what they're funded has been successful and you will often come across uh, organizations or, or others that will push back at the idea of rigorous some sort of rigorous methodology and um, there's also a problem that uh, across many Western countries at least we're operating in a time of austerity um, so many well meaning and important community programs have been defunded um, and and what they're seeing is, oh, well, there's there's one way I could get money here, is, is recategorizing this as a, as a CVE initiative. So there's all sorts of structural problems which which are surrounding this, which are, it's not just the case that uh, it's, it's difficult to do, it's a case that the structures that are sitting around it actively stop us from monitoring and evaluating uh, the success of works, because no one gets another grant if they come out and say, yeah, well, listen, that one was a disaster, let me tell you why. Um, And that actually was a big part of the reason we we, we set up uh, Moonshot is because we saw that the unwillingness to fail meant that uh, innovation wasn't happening, but also that proper monitoring, evaluation and being open about your mistakes wasn't happening either.
1: It's not that there's no evaluation happening. It's Mm. just that it's not consistent. So if you look at the list of programs that the Radicalization Awareness Network in Europe is involved in, they have descriptions of their evaluation methods and some have sort of independent uh, ones built in. Whereas others just have a sentence or two saying we got good feedback or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Oftentimes the, the indicators it's what's key is, is your, your key performance indicators, which is a you know one oh one of monitoring and evaluation of course. But um, one of the challenges for the CVE sector is is that it's been rarer that you find KPIs that are set around behaviour change, and that really get us a sense down to the individual level as to what impact we're having on individuals. So that's where CVE programs have often fell short in terms of evaluation. Interesting.
1: Um, What's also interesting here is similarities to the academic field of terrorism studies, Hmm. which is what I've been doing research in for the past few years. So that field has had a number of problems because it's not well institutionalised within academia. It sort of shadows this gap between the media, academia and the state. Then with the CV sector, you sort of have the same thing, but you also have it overlapping with community groups and community politics, plus the private sector, businesses and entrepreneurs trying to come in and all competing against each other. And that makes things very difficult, I think, for quality control.
0: It makes it difficult difficult for quality control for sure, but it also presents us with a huge opportunity. So we see CVE as a space which will be most effectively delivered if we can draw on the talents and skills and and abilities across a really diverse array of of sectors. And that's actually, um, again, one of the the founding principles behind Moonshot CVE is that we wanted to, because we know that there are lots of private sector business companies, social media companies that are coming from outside of CVE and converging on, on this issue because it's important and they know that we need to deal with it. We saw this as an opportunity, setting up Moonshot CVE, as an opportunity to start with CVE as our as our base point, our, our, our kind of starting point, and to bring all of the talents that we need around the table to start with ch- solving challenges related to CVE, and that we know if we can build some technology-related solutions, if we can be innovative in our design of programming in CVE, those methodologies can be applicable to many other sectors as well. So we see CVE as a space to trial and test things in the hardest of contexts. I mean, changing the behaviors of people that are, that are violent is... An incredibly difficult thing to do if we can achieve that we see huge value in those methodologies being applied to to all of those wider sectors
1: okay tell us all about moonshot when did you set it up what does it do so yeah we uh
2: we set up moonshot cve uh almost exactly a year ago now um, and uh, we've, we've grown quite rapidly since then. It started out with just myself and Vidya, and uh, we now are a team of nine based out of London. Um, we work globally to try and apply innovative methodologies to the field of countering violent extremism. Um, that innovation often, but not always, takes place online. Um, and we look primarily at three areas, which will be familiar to many of your listeners and to yourself. Um, which would be first uh, intervention, um, second uh, messaging and the final one is kind of resilience and uh, and training. And then outside of that context, we um, we also try and place as many as many small bets on uh, uh, promising ideas, promising technologies as we possibly can because the, the thing that sets us apart from other CV organizations is that we don't have the same constraints that, uh, charities do in terms of having a board, in terms of governments of course, um, and also in terms of universities. Um, we can actually uh, invest our own money, our own time and our own effort into things that no one else will fund, gather data on what's successful and then scale some of that up. And We've actually seen um, a piece of technology we're, we're using right now. We came up with the idea for it less than six months ago. We uh, workshopped it, researched it, um, brought it to market, and it's now impacting CVE programs across the world in a less than six-month period. Um, in many
1: organizations you'd be lucky to get a paper out in that time, never mind a, a fully working product. Okay. Yeah, so it allows you to experiment more, see what works, see what doesn't work in a shorter period of time. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, and Ross, when you were at Institute for Strategic Dialogue, you co-authored a report on women who travel to join the self-described Islamic State and a lot of the media reporting on this focuses on the motivation of marrying a jihadist fighter, the so-called jihadist brides. What were some of the other motivations going on there?
2: Yeah, so um, Carolyn Hoyle, Alexander Bradford, and and, and myself um, wrote, wrote the report called uh, Becoming Mulan. Um, and the, the, the key finding, actually, was uh, that although these things were expressed differently, uh, that women who travel to join... ISIS or dash or whatever it is we're 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 calling it um, have very very similar motivations to men. Um, There's a a mix of understandable outrage at what is happening in Syria, um, an adherence to or at least uh, not an aversion to the the ideology of the group, um, and a search for belonging, sisterhood, and meaning in their lives. And when we independently, just by focusing on the on the sample size of, of, of women, um, came to these conclusions, we looked at it and realized they were almost identical to men, they're just expressed in a different way. So, um, as I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of, um, the big difference between ISIS and, and what came before it um, is not how they see women, it's that women have a role inside uh, Syria and Iraq, and the in the territory that, that, that ISIS controlled in a way they never previously did. Um, so that was essentially, I mean, if if I had to if I had to point to it, those are the three factors. And the big takeaway was that uh, not that different from men, just expressed in a different way.
1: Okay. Was there also an issue of ISIS appealing um, to the mothers' care of their children, saying, "Do you not want your children built up, or brought up in a purely Islamic state?" It's the best thing to bring your children over here.
2: Yeah, there was. I mean, there were some elements of that. So there's obviously there's there's, there's tailored propaganda for for all sorts of groups and and, and women. Women are no exception. Um, actually, a test that 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 we at Moonshot ran, um, we found incredibly interesting. We um, looked at women searching for ISIS content and men searching for ISIS content. Um, And we categorized that content by a number of different variables, um, one of which was uh, military success uh, and one of which was a kind of a humanitarian view of protecting the people of Syria, protecting the children. Um, The stereotype, uh, if you read some of the coverage on this, would be that the men would be the one who would very much be interested in the military success narrative and the women would be the ones interested in the humanitarian narrative. Um, in a sample size that was in the tens of thousands globally, um, we found that women were marginally more interested in the military uh, material than men were, and men were marginally more interested in the humanitarian intervention, uh, protecting the women and children of Syria, um, and they were more likely to click on that than, than, than women were. So. Uh, I think a lot of our assumptions around what drives people to actually get involved in this um, need to be backed up by data and that's exactly what we've been trying to do in terms of uh, testing some of these narratives with wide audiences of people searching for ISIS content.
1: Interesting. That actually also relates to a conversation I was having on Twitter yesterday about kind of the opposite side from that, that within academia there's often an assumption that women aren't as interested in military and national security and sort of. You know, pointy edge side of counterterrorism issues as men, um, but in my experience, that's not the case at all. Um, and I know many women around my age level who are extremely interested in uh, military issues, but there's an assumption, particularly at high levels, that is unusual.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the way we view. Uh... Female recruits to ISIS. Uh, the way we view this sector generally, and our entire society, is viewed massively through a gendered lens. So it shouldn't be a huge surprise to us when, uh, when we go out and gather data, uh, that uh, that some of those assumptions are, are busted. Which is again why uh, why every single assumption,
1: um, at least in, in our philosophy, uh, needs to be needs to be tested uh, rigorously against the data that's available. Rudi, do you want to bust any of our assumptions while we hear two men talking about? women
0: oh absolutely women are <laughs> women are absolutely interested in this issue and and also and also uh, doing some of the the greatest research on this issue and, and delivering some of the the most powerful interventions um, there's also an assumption that uh, you know, there's been a drive in, in recent years, um, at least from a, a personal drive as well, to, to push more researchers to get out there and do more direct engagement work with individuals who are either coming out of these movements or even those that are in these movements are vulnerable to as part of their research. And, um, and there's a lot of hesitations around um, and assumptions around the inability of women to do that research. Um, and even here in Australia, we've been meeting with, with female researcher, researchers who have completely busted that assumption that women can't. Do um, do interviews with uh, with his but can't do in- interviews with with right wing extremists. Um, I, as a woman who has done interviews and field work with right wing extremists with a massively um, male movement, say that it is possible and actually you can get some really interesting data that potentially male researchers can't actually get from their own interviews. So there's huge potential there. There's also it's 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 work that's already happening. So we definitely need to recognize it.
1: Yeah. And sometimes those gendered assumptions are quite prevalent within ethics committees at universities, unfortunately.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, and so, Ross, you also co authored a report on a one to one online intervention program. And that's quite innovative because online CVE programs often involve sort of broadcasting counter messages. And often, when people talk about intervention in CVE, they often think of offline interventions. So, can you tell us about this study on a one-to-one online intervention yeah. and what, what it found?
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, you're you're totally right that that there tends to be this division between online and offline uh, in terms of in terms of how we how we think about it. Um, I mean, our approach at Moonshot is to try and treat all extremists, as we've mentioned a number of times, as individuals, and that goes from the online to the offline. I mean, the the, the generation generally that are going radicalised now are. Uh, our digital natives, and that division between on and offline identity is is, is complete nonsense. Um, so the the thing that drove us to to carry out this this pilot program um, over a year ago now um, was recognizing that gap. When we looked at um, what extremists are doing, in very simple terms, they're producing propaganda, engaging in peer to peer messaging online and through through text messaging and WhatsApp, um, and then engaging in offline conversations and in simple terms that tends to be what's happening Um, and on our side there are counter propaganda efforts and there are offline intervention efforts some of which we've spoken about earlier in terms of exit and DRAD programs Uh, but we noticed there was a gap in the middle in terms of the proactive utilization of peer-to-peer messaging to identify people online and uh, engage them in conversations so uh, we ran a a pilot program um, with the 160 individuals um, who are at risk of both far-right and jihadist extremism, and while we were expecting a response rate of maybe 10%, we found um, 59% of, of individuals that had uh, that were sent direct messages to talk about their lives, talk about why they got involved with the ultimate aim of bringing them out, responded. Um, so we think there's a huge amount of potential here, um, and sometimes we get asked the questions, like, well, what evidence is there that online peer-to-peer engagement can change behaviors say well the evidence is all around us in terms of people joining these movements after those kinds of conversations so what we need to do is harness that technology on our side and that's something that um after the pilot of course but also that we at moonshot have been focusing very heavily on developing the technology that will allow us to do that at scale
1: excellent just before i finish what advice would you have for any of our listeners Interested in the area of CVE and how they can learn more.
2: I mean, the way the the way that uh, that we interact and actually the way that that there's so much content out there that's that's uh, of varying quality. Um, I don't know, figure what you think, but following the right people on Twitter and letting them curate content for you and engaging that way is, is is often very useful. So there's a lot of influential and and interesting individuals out there. You you of course. Uh, 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 front and, front and center among them, that um, that can do that. So, if any listeners out there that aren't uh, engaging on Twitter, that would be uh, number one. And then, in terms of the broader broader stuff, you can do. I don't know if you're you I mean,
0: built into our our philosophy in, in moonshot, and it kind of sits behind our name. This this idea of uh, quite literally, our name comes from comes from shooting for the moon for when NASA was was um, was going to send its its first uh, spaceship out to to the moon. And um, you know, we very much believe that CBE has, uh, has in many ways had its hands tied in terms of innovation and in terms of willingness to think outside the box. And so we ourselves are trying to, to think, um, you know, even through some of the craziest ideas, you know, can we use online dating apps to reach extremists? Can we use you know, wireless technology to reach people? I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to push boundaries in terms of what may work and if we can pilot test small scale here and there and gather data on on any any initiatives that that give us some proof of of concept, then we can scale them up from there. So we'd be very keen to encourage the rest of the sector around us, our kind of friends, collaborators, and colleagues, to join us in, in that mission and to just think really, yeah, think really outside the box about how we can how we can change the CBE field. That's
1: a much better answer than that. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you.